This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I just finished a great novel. The name of the novel is Lucy by the Sea. It's written by Elizabeth Strout. I'm going to take a quick moment to say I could recommend that novel without reservation. I cannot recommend all of Elizabeth Strout's novels without reservation. Let that be registered as such. She's a very good writer. Lucy by the Sea. So this is her last novel she's written. It's a fun novel to read because she actually sets it in the lockdown pandemic uh, time. And it's a very, she, she herself is a baby boomer. She writes a lot about boomers. And as a Gen Xer, there are moments in her writings where you have an okay boomer moment. That said, you can overcome that. And she actually has two boomers in their 60s. They're walking together uh, by the ocean in Maine. They are both non-religious by background. But it's the pandemic, and they're thinking through the essential matters of life. And Bob, one character, says to Lucy, the other character, out of the blue, he says, Lucy, do you believe in God? Lucy thinks about it, and she says, well, Bob, I can't say I don't believe in God. Perfect. I want to ascribe that sentiment simply to our baby boomers. I think she captured in that moment an American mentality so well. I can't say I don't believe in God. I'm not ready to commit myself to atheism. Some are, but very few in, overall in America at this point, even by polls. I'm not ready to commit myself even to a full-blown agnosticism. But I'm not ready to commit myself to a full belief in God either. I can't say I don't believe in God. What's fascinating is this is the fourth book about Lucy Barton. The first book is called My Name is Lucy Barton, and it's really about her journey of identity. Who am I? What does it mean that my name is Lucy Barton, and what am I about? And I would argue that Strout, who is an author of a significant integrity, cannot help but link Lucy's lack of clarity about who God is with, fascinatingly, a lack of clarity about who she is. A similar question is asked not by Bob Burgess, but in this case, by Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to his school of followers that he has developed over time, those that he's equipping and teaching about his very person, about the kingdom of God, he says to them, first, who do others say that I am? It's a, it's a kind of interest question. What are you hearing? What's going on out there? And then he moves it personal, right? And he says, who do you say that I am? He posits the most urgent question that the human person can be asked. Not a, unlike at all, Bob saying to Lucy, do you believe in God? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are Messiah, Christ, same word, two different languages. You are Messiah, the Son of the living God. An absolute historic moment known as the, the Caesarea Philippi. That's where it's located, confession of Christ. Historical moment about who Jesus is, first and foremost, and his mission. But Jesus turns it immediately and following Jesus' declaration of Jesus, Peter's declaration of Jesus' identity, what does Jesus do? Go there, go there now. Uh, Matthew 16, if you brought your Bibles, it's Matthew 16. You can also, if you've got a um, pew Bible there in front of you, it's page 822. 
Who do you say that I am? You are Messiah, Son of the living God. Okay? 822. And then Jesus, after the question of his identity, turns and declares Peter's identity. As if the identity of God and the identity of human beings are linked. As if you'll never find out who you really are until you understand who Jesus really is. As if declaring the truth of Jesus boldly will actually lead you to discern your identity bravely. It's not an as if, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what's happening here. Yes, it's historic. It's a critical, pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. And it's also Jesus' identity and ours. You are Simon Barjona. This is who you are. You are Peter. That's the name that Jesus gave him. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom name. It's more than a nickname. It's a kingdom name. You are Simon Barjona. You are Peter. It's amazing. So let's look at this. Let's, let's look at this together. Psychologists say that there's sort of three critical components to human identity. It's kind of just a basic teaching. One is the component of significance. It's critical to human identity that there's a contribution that we know we make. There's a significance, a contribution that we can make. Then there's worth. Do we matter? And then there's belonging. With our sense of significance and our sense of worth, where are we in relationship and community and engaged in an ecosystem where others are also living out their significance and their worth? How are we connected? And Jesus, in speaking to Peter, as we unfold this, and I would argue, in speaking to Peter, he's also speaking to us. There's a unique moment to Peter, and we'll get into that, but it's everything he says is things he says about the follower of Jesus as well. He says three things about identity in him. One, we have the significance of choice, verses 13 to 16. Two, we have the worth of children, verse 17. Three, we belong to Jesus and his church. He claims us. We have the significance of choice, verses 13 to 16. This is not explicit, but very implicit. Jesus asks a question. In asking a question, he's saying to his followers, you can choose to give an answer. And you can give any answer you want. We kind of started theoretical. Who do they say that I am? John the Baptist. I mean, it's quite a gathering of folks. Some contemporaneous, some ancient. John the Baptist. Jeremiah shows up in there. But now the choice becomes very specific because choice is central to the creation of the person from the biblical worldview. Okay, look, look, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis means beginning, okay? So in the, in the beginning, what we have is God creates male and female in his image. That's not their choice. Now, then it'll take choice because then men and women will choose to be together and create more males and more females. But originally, it's a sovereign choice. God creates male and female. But then in his initiative, his choice, always it's his choice first. He chooses us before we choose him. In his choice, he then immediately sets the table for human personhood by giving them choice. He says in Genesis 2, here's a tree. They're in a garden. Here's a tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. I'm giving you a choice. 
I'm dignifying the person with a choice. As a matter of fact, I made you in my image, so I operate with choice. It's called God's fiat. I operate with choice. So now you made in my image, you too will operate with choice. That will be one of the most significant things about you. They will choose destruction. They will choose rebellion against God. God, through his redeeming power, will still redeem the opportunity for choice insofar as the human person can always choose to believe in God. No one can ever take from you your ability to choose to believe in God and to believe in the word of God. That is always your choice. Always. It's central to who you are. Many years ago, We'll have to add a plural to decades at this point. I was entering Wheaton College. Uh, back then, you had a choice. See, now you don't have a choice. You have to do passage, right? Wheaton, Wheaties, they're here. Now you have to if you're a freshman. All right. But back in the day, you could choose. It wasn't called passage. That's a very nice thing. It was called high road. It should have been called misery road. It was three weeks of mosquito-bitten, slogging through swamps in an onerous experience um, in which people literally broke down and quivered on the path. And that's not an exaggeration. I could tell the story, but I don't have the time. And part of High Road was they gave you seven different books to read. And let me tell you, it was, they were not pamphlets. Victor Frankl was one of the books, Man's Search for Meaning. I still remember reading that book. And in this, Frankl, a dedicated Jew, psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust, wrote in retrospect of that terrifying torturous experience, what's at the heart of meaning, he was asking. And he wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, which is to choose. To choose one's perspective, one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. We would, of course, understand that as followers of Jesus to choose the way of Jesus. But it gets to the heart of choice. Choice, we started with choice. And now we are, now we're, let's go to our scene, you guys, verse 15. Now we have what's put before the followers an urgent choice. Verse 15. Who do you say that I am? Now this is urgent because this is Jesus on his mission, putting forward the kingdom of God, asking those he's invested the most in, who do you say that I am? Do you yet understand who I am. That's historical and urgent. It's also urgent because of the background of Caesarea Philippi. Many of you have had a chance to travel to the Holy Lands, and if so, you know Caesarea Philippi tells you a lot about what's happening in this moment. The urgency of Jesus saying, who do you say that I am, is enhanced. If it didn't already need to be enhanced, it's enhanced even more now because we're in a, in a historical area, Caesarea Philippi, there's a place of profound pagan worship. This is the place where the Baal gods, the gods of fertility, the gods of multiplication, the gods of sexual immorality that came into Israel had power. This was a Baal god center right here in Caesarea Philippi. As the Israelites moved out and the Greeks and the Romans moved in, they kept it as a center of pagan worship. They just moved it from Baal to Pan. And if you have any image of Pan, which I'm guessing many of you don't, but if you do, and he's a jolly little chap with a flute, that's not this pan. This is terror. Pan is a god of terror. 
Pan is a, a pantheistic, it's kind of the, the pantheon of gods, the many gods all wrapped up into, into Pan. And there would be a sense of Pan has power, and Pan lives in this cave, in this rock, in Caesarea Philippi. It was called the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. Because the idea was Pan lives in there, and you have to appease Pan so that he'll bless our crops and bless our family. And so you would literally commit, and I'm doing this because we got kids here, you would commit infanticide, an offering to Pan of live children who were given over. You would commit acts of sexual immorality so that Pan would somehow bless your work. This is a place of incredible darkness, incredible terror. Herod set up. Herod set up a place of idol worship at this very place. The same man who went through Bethlehem after Jesus was born and said, murder every boy under the age of two. This is the anti-child place where the most vulnerable are made incredibly vulnerable. This was known as the rock. This was known as the gate of hell. And Jesus says to them, standing in the middle of that darkness, who do you say that I am? Do you understand what I'm doing? Do you understand what I'm about? Do you understand that I can overcome even this cave of hell? Do you understand that? Who do you say that I am? This was not in a sterile classroom. Huh, I wonder who God is. This was not, frankly, the privileged characters of Lucy Barton sitting by the ocean with enough money to ride out the pandemic by themselves and having to work. Who do you think God is? It's all coming down to a moment here. Now, how they answer that question will affect how they answer every other question. So the significance of your choice is how you answer the question, who do you say that I am, has to do with how you will make every other decision in your life. Will you make it by the word of God or not? If you're in a particularly challenging moment, do you believe in God? Who do you say that Jesus is? We have that significance. Okay, so he gives the answer, and then look at 17. This is really interesting and important. You would think Jesus might answer them by teaching him more about his Messiahship. He will do that in the next section. All right, so you have your Bibles there. You can see right underneath this section is a section where he'll teach them about his death and his resurrection. He's going to teach them more about his Messiahship and the shape of his Messiahship and how different his Messiahship is than what they have been raised to expect. But instead of going into what his Messiahship is and fulfilling out the identity of his Messiahship, what does he do? He turns to Peter's identity. Because he understands that his identity as Messiah, as, the, as being fully God, fully man, the full Son of God, is linked to Peter's identity because Peter was made in the image of God. And there's a profound link between who God is and who we are. And it's in that order and only in that order. So he says, you are Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar has nothing to do with liquid beverages, in case you're wondering. You're like, oh, yeah, Peter, I like Peter. He was a, you know, what? No, 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 no. I don't do that. Yeah. It means son. You're the son of Jonah. You're, Peter, you're a child. In a, good, in a wonderful way. You're connected to a family. You're connected to an earthly family. This is also a very important Hebrew idiom. This is, the, this is how you're identified. 
You're the son of a father. He wants to talk to him about identity. And one of the core places of identity in the human reality is the family. It's the mother and the father and the identity that they give to a child. And so he's speaking right now to his earthly identity. Then he moves from his earthly identity, Barjona. Actually, go down to 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Okay, then we'll go back up to 17, okay? You are Peter. So then what he's doing is he's saying, not only do you have this earth identity, Barjona, you have a kingdom identity. I'm nicknaming you. Here's your kingdom name. Peter means rock. You are rock, and on this rock. We'll get to that next section, okay? On this rock. But you are, this is your kingdom identity. So he's talking about, this is your earth identity. This is your kingdom identity. And then he's going to make very clear, and then let me give you your ultimate identity. Let me tell you who you are above every other identity. The Father in heaven revealed this to you because you are a son of the Father. Jesus says, my Father in this case, but earlier in Matthew chapter 6, what did he teach them when they pray? Our Father. My Father is your Father. That's your core identity. My identity is the son of the Father, son of the living God. That's your identity too. You are a son or a daughter of the living God who revealed this truth to you about my sonship. So I now reveal to, reveal to you about your sonship, about your daughterhood. You've got an earthly identity, a kingdom identity, and an eternal heavenly identity. And it all has to do with the fact that you're a child. You're connected. You're bonded. You're meant to develop and grow and mature. This is all of what this means. You have that worth in Christ. That's who you are. Why is kingdom and heavenly so important? Because earthly can be so fraught. And some of you have the absolute gift of, of being given the gift of an earthly family that's nurtured you and may even brought you up in the, the fear and wisdom of God. Praise the Lord. It's a beautiful don't wish you had anything else. It's wonderful. Not everybody has that. Lucy Barton, she didn't have that in her story. And so here's what she does. Now she's in her 60s. She has an anxious moment. She has a fearful moment. And what she does is she says to herself, Mommy, what should I do? And the author says, this wasn't to her earthly mother who had been violent and terrifying. This was to a mother that Lucy had made up. Mommy, what should I do? And then Mommy responds to her, Oh, sweetheart, you're very bright. You can figure this out. Because she has to make it up. She has to fabricate. Because she doesn't know that she has actually a kingdom parentage and an eternal parentage. But those of us who have the Bible, we can know that. We can know that as important as the family is, an important as our earthly parentage is, we can be born again. We must be born again. John chapter 1 says, you weren't born simply of the will of man. You were born of the power of God, the will of the Father, that you are made the Father's child by being born again in Jesus. That's your core identity. So we need to know our kingdom identity and our heavenly identity because the earthly identity, even if it was amazing, it's not going to be enough. Okay, you guys, Isaiah 51, the church has given us this as part of her readings. Uh, go over there. That's page 611. It's a beautiful passage. It's important to understanding our child identity in God. 
Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. This is, this is to the people of Israel, to the family, the kingdom of Israel, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. What God is saying, he's saying to Israel, you have a father and a mother. You have Abraham and Sarah. By the way, it was awesome to have. Lisa is a Jewish believer in Jesus. It was awesome to have a daughter of Abraham read that passage, the daughter of Sarah. That was awesome. I don't think we planned that. That worked really well. And those of us who are Gentiles, we're grafted into that kingdom reality. We got Abraham and Sarah as our parents. Why does that matter? Because that's the heritage. Why does that matter? Because there's a mother and a father. Israel had a mother and a father. They have, they have that kingdom reality that is so rich and profound. We are children of this kingdom. And this matters as we think about the church. Because the church is a she and not an it. Ephesians chapter 5, 2 John, to the elect lady and her children, which I would argue is to the church and her children, from the elect lady and her children, from another church to another church. The elect lady, children, it's a maternal image. It's a feminine image of a bride in Ephesians 5. This is why Cyprian could say, third century bishop says, no one can have God as father, does not have church as mother. We're just saying there's a fatherhood that comes from God. There's a motherhood given to us in the church, in that assembly, in that belonging, in an Abraham and a Sarah. And this matters deeply. You've got so much child heritage as a Bible believer. It's just stacked one upon another. Why? Because it matters so much to your identity. It matters to your worth. It matters that that is core to your worth. And as you repent of your sin and your rebellion against your childlikeness and your rebellion against your parentage, you come into a deep worth that no one can shake. No one can take it from you. You know the forces want to take your identity from you, right? You all know that, right? You know that the Baal gods and the Pan gods and the gods were trying to take the identity of people from them and make them believe that they could be who they were and accomplish what they needed to accomplish by believing in them. But the promise of God is that no one can take your identity from you. You're a child of God bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's where your worth comes from. And do not buy any lie that tries to tell you that your worth comes from anywhere else or any place else. Watch out for the caves of pan and death and look for the rock of Jesus Christ to whom we belong. Let's do this. We belong to Jesus and his church, verses 18 to 20. And, okay, like, I have a very soft spot for Lucy Barton. I read these novels all summer, so I, I, I get it. I mean, you're shaking your head at this point. I understand. <laughs> but, I mean, this just broke my heart. I know she's fictional, um, but I really want to have her over to dinner with my family, <laughs> right? Because she has to make up a parent <laughs> when she's terrified. Like, that's what happens when you're lost. That's the kind of stuff you have to do. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to make up a parent. 
You belong to Jesus. You belong to his church. Okay, the Lord, it would have been really helpful if he'd given even more teaching here because a whole lot of folks have been trying to figure out what he said here. Verse 18, turn with me in your Bibles. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my assembly, and the gates of hell, right over there, Pan's cave, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven, loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. All right. I want to look at rock, and I want to talk about rock and belonging to the rock in three different ways, okay? So I'm going to work at three levels of interpretation here with rock. Okay. First of all, when Jesus says, on this rock, I would argue that the first way that I would take this is he means the rock of death, the rock of the pan god, the Baal god, the rock of the cave on this rock. I'm right here in Caesarea Philippi. I'm right here at this pagan place on this rock, the rock of death. I will build my church. I will build my messiahship. I will build my kingdom on that which you think could never be a foundation, which is the reality of death. But what kind of death? My death. Which is why he immediately will teach in the next passage there in your Bibles, I have to go and die. The rock is the death of the Messiah to overcome the death cave of Pan. And the foundation of the church is that we have a God in Jesus who went to the cross and died a physical death that he might overcome death. And that is our rock. That is our foundation. Anyone else would say, that's sand. That's insanity. We're all trying to explain. We're trying to run from death. We're offering things to Pan so we can avoid our own death. Right. Exactly. It's a very confusing messiahship for people to understand then and now. The rock is my death. I will overcome death by my death. And the gates of hell, this rock, will not overcome the rock of Isaiah 51. Will not overcome the rock of the power of God. Nothing will overcome that. That's your identity, church. That's your identity as the church of Jesus Christ. That's your identity as a follower of Jesus. That's why the poor in spirit are the first blessing he gives in Matthew chapter 5. Because we are those who pick up our cross as our Lord picked up his cross. We are those who die to self as our Lord died as well. We share in the suffering of Jesus as we share in the resurrection of Jesus. That's exactly what I think he's saying here. And I'm going to build everything on this. And if you, let's go. <laughs> it's worth getting excited about. This is true. This is the son of the living God. And it will change everything we do. And all the choices that we have the significance to make, it will change those choices. If we believe that Jesus died and set a foundation for the church, but that's not it, right? What's the second rock? The second rock would be an interpretation that if you were raised evangelical and fortunate to be taught the Bible growing up, you were taught that likely this rock is the confession of Peter. And I think that's a great interpretation. You are Messiah, son of the living God. So the rock is the rock of death, Jesus' death over that death, but the rock is the rock of life. The rock is the rock of the resurrection. The rock is another rock. A rock that will be rolled away by the power of God. And Jesus will march out of that rock, fully resurrected, fully alive, and in control of every single rock of death that will ever come against any follower of Jesus or the church in any time. Let's talk about rocks. 
Let's talk about rocks rolled away and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You belong to that rock. You belong to his death. You belong to his resurrection. And then there's a third way we can work with rock here. I don't think we can avoid that Peter has an important connection here. You, you are Peter. You are rock. And on this rock I will build my church. Protestants and evangelicals get a little uncomfortable here because this is a strong Roman Catholic biblical argument for the papacy, for the see of Peter. I'm not going to try and un unpack all of that right now. I've done a lot of thinking about that as an Anglican, all right? But let me say this. We can't get away from Peter being key in here. What is he saying? I think he's saying you got the rock of death, you got the rock of life, and you also belong to a rock of authority. It's primarily my authority in my death and in my life. It's my authority. But I'm actually going to give authority to the church. I'm going to give authority to, the, called the keys. I'm going to give, a, and if you see an icon of Peter, he's often holding keys. I'm going to give authority to my apostles. I'm going to give authority to the ministers of my church to do what? To proclaim the freedom that comes from sin and from the demonic powers through my death and resurrection. So the church will proclaim that what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. That where you are bound by sin and bound by demonic powers and bound by caves of Pan, you can now be utterly freed by the power of Jesus declared and ministered by his ministers. There's authority in the church. You belong to the death. You belong to the life. And you now belong to the authority of church to minister that death and life to you. And Peter had a key leadership ministry in that way. He was the leader of the apostles. And man, would he experience the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus and his own desperate need to have his sins forgiven and the power of the demonic overcome. Let's be really, really clear. There are caves of Pan in Wheaton. There are caves of Pan throughout the western suburbs. There are caves of Pan in our own hearts. There are dark death places. And the question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am, has a very profound urgency. And you've got the significance of choice. You have the worth of being a child of God. And you belong to Jesus and to his church. Okay, I won't dodge verse 20. I'll, fin I'll do it really quickly, but I can't... I mean, like, why? I, that is so confusing. Okay, so we've had all this amazing stuff, and he's like, don't tell anybody. You're like, I thought we were supposed to tell people. You're always telling us, go tell people about Jesus. What is going on here? Um, so here's what's going on here, just briefly. It's a narrative. It's unfolding, okay? So the, the narrative unfolding is they don't understand his messiahship yet. He just gave them a major understanding of who they are. He'll then teach on his messiahship in the, in the following verses, and they're confused about his messiahship, like we're confused often about his messiahship, and we forget it's the messiahship built on death and on life and on authority. We don't, we don't, we don't understand that. So he's saying to them, right now, um, you need more conversion and you need more catechesis. Let's just keep it between us. Once they've seen the resurrected Jesus and experienced him and it's been revealed to them, once they understand how the, all the scriptures of the prophets fit together, then he'll say in Matthew 28, go, tell everyone. This is what's called the messianic secret. I think it's more just the messianic pause. Just hold, more teaching, more readiness, and then you're going to go. And you're going to tell people they don't have to make up a parent in their head. They've got an identity. So if you're ready to boldly declare who Jesus is, 
you can bravely discern from his voice in the word of God who you are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.